Welcome to Hollywood Waters Podcast, uh, another episode of bringing you the finest in the passion and the journey for fly fishing for all species of trout, steelhead, Atlantic salmon. Um, I'm Matthew Sapinski, the publisher and editor and of uh, Hollywood Waters Journal. Uh, we will be talking to a lot of great people uh, over the next few episodes um, and uh, getting some really in-depth technical information um, you know, science, historical information, things that, you know, you, you really don't think about until you really dive into them. Um, the world of fly fishing is so, uh, so deep. And, and the more you scrape at it, the more you find out, um, you know, the legacies, the history, where these fly patterns come from, you know, there's, there's, there's a few icons out there that are, are, are deep into that whole lore and legacy had some incredible mentors, um, and we're going to, we're going to talk to these people over the, over the next couple, uh, years and months, hopefully, and, uh, and get into, to exploring their mind and the way they think. Today's podcast is a special guy. Um, I'm running a series called Big Brown Trout Hunters, and this is episode two, uh, the dry fly stalker. Um, and the first episode we had was with, um, Tommy Lynch, the night stalker. So we're going from the night to the dry fly day stalker. Um, and it's my real honor and privilege to talk to a guy that I've known for a couple decades now. This guy is a super dry fly master of epic proportions. Um, he's studied every facet of it. Um, um, and it's, it's the one and only Paul Weimer. How are you, Paul Weimer? Thanks, Matt. As always, you're too kind in your introductions, but I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Great to see you. Awesome. Great to be alive after the last year we've all been through. Yeah, it's it's amazing how we quickly forgot about that last year. <laughs> like all this, we're all uh, vaccinated and we're like, uh, well, some of us are, most of us are. Well, thank God. Uh, but right. uh, yeah, so it's 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 been a crazy year. We thought the world was ending, and uh, it it taught us to redesign our lives in some respect. And uh, I started a magazine journal. Uh, when we were locked down and, and out of business and stuff. So, you know, in a lot of respects, it's been pretty good, but you know, the big move for you was the big move out to Montana to Yellowstone. And um, I remember you when um, I met you at the fly shop, when you're working for cause on the Delaware and you worked for Coochie and you, you technically were, I never worked for cause, but okay. Well, yeah, well, let's, let's <laughs> you were like the manager of the shop and cause just sort of appeared. God bless you. God, we love you, by the way. You know, you know what you're dear in our hearts and we still love and send love and kisses to you, buddy. Uh, but yeah, so the, you know, um, it, when I met you at working in the fly shops and, and, and you were at the Rainbow Fly Shop, which is right on the corner by the bridge on, on the on the on the West Branch. And uh, you were just so into knowing absolutely everything about the, the dry fly hatches there and the mayfly hatches and you were so bug driven and um and it's just carrying on to today because your you know your book accolades just keep going and going and going um you know people know you for let me just you know the bug book so the one of the best best introductory books other than um uh, dick pope's uh trout stream insects and a few other pocket books was the bug book and everybody probably has the bug book um you wrote the pocket guide to PA hatches, uh, fly fishing guide to the upper Delaware, which is a classic and it's in his second edition. 
uh, Pocket Guide to New York Hatches, Dry Fly Strategies is in your new book coming out, which we'll talk about. But tell me, you know, a little bit about the time when you were, uh, when you were uh, with, with Charlie Mech. And I think you learned a lot, quite a bit with Mech. That was like a real foundation for you. Yeah, I, I uh, right after college, my wife and I moved back to, to Central PA where I grew up. And, and I had a job working as a counselor in public schools schools and in the summer months we would take these kids that were at risk to be placed outside their home and and we would do at various activities and i i would take them fishing and one day i i had some kids and and uh <laughs> we were fishing a tributary to the little juniata river and all of a sudden this crazy looking guy comes stumbling out of the underbrush with with a big butterfly net <laughs> and uh he looks at me and says hi and I actually looked to see where the kids are. I was like, you know, this guy <laughs> seems a little out there. I don't know what he's doing out here. And, uh, and he says, my name's Charlie Mech. Maybe you've had, you've read one of my books. And uh, I said, yeah, I have. I have read your books, Charlie. And and right then he was looking for a, a dark green drake, a little branch of recurvata. And one of them lifts off this little creek and lands right on his shirt. And he says, look at this. They like the color blue. Everything likes the color blue. You know, thank you so much. Why don't you come back to the car? I want to give you something. I was like, I still don't even know what I did, but but the bug landed on him and he was going to give me something. So we walked back to his car and, and his wife Shirley was there. They gave me a little Lucite box with a Patriot dry fly and a little olive emerger in it. And I was in my uh, early 20s. And uh, I thought I'd take a chance. I said, hey, sir, if you'd ever want to fish together, I'd love to fish with you. And uh, Charlie says, sure. Pulls out a business card, writes his personal number on it. And uh, waited a couple of weeks before I called him. I was nervous to talk to this hatch matching legend. And he invited me to the Spruce Creek Rod and Gun Club. And we went and fished together. And that started a friendship that's lasted over 20 some years. Um, you know, Charlie became one of the, the closest people in my life. So just a wonderful person and taught me a lot. Yeah, he yeah. He was such an icon when I when I was in my hotel days in Washington D.C. and fishing the PA Limestoners, and I'd pop up to State College and fish Spruce Creek. Actually, Lori and I spent our honeymoon on Spruce Creek, uh, <laughs> which was crazy fishing the Trico Hatch on Harpster's property. And um, so, yeah, it was. Uh, he was such a big icon there, and and it's amazing how he seemed to be more friendly, friendlier icon than the guy that. I tried to mentor, well, mentored me in a way, but I had to sort of buy his friendship was uh, the great curmudgeon Vince Marinero, um, <laughs> who, who hated people in general. And if you got near him, he would throw something at you. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, I, I had to buy his friendship with smoked salmon and uh, smoked salmon and, and fine Italian wines. And then all of a sudden he started to like me. So sometimes you have to buy your way into people. Life has not changed. It's still the same way. Uh, but yeah, but Charlie Mack, you know, you just always heard of Charlie Mack. If you just got close to state college, he was the man. So now you're in, you're, you're in Yellowstone, which, uh, you're starting to look like Yellowstone with that b b b mustache there. I love it. You look like a, you're, you're, did you go to the rodeo last night? By any I, I did not, but you know, huh. COVID mask can hide a lot of sin, right? So <laughs> this thing like starts budding itself like a chia pet under that mask. And I, I got my private little secret going on. And then now that everybody's unmasked, everybody can see this disaster that, that's been growing on my face. What One of my brothers told me I looked like Hulk Hogan if Hulk Hogan got sick. <laughs> That's right. You do sort of look, you just need more tattoos, dude. You need more bling on the arms and the back and uh, the neck. The neck is just a little too white, uh, too little white right. for me, you know? 
<laughs> you gotta you gotta jazz get a little more cred to the neck and i think you'd be a little little more uh world wrestling federation but um so you know you you made the big move out from from the delaware out to montana you're in yellowstone now you're in tourist craziness um it is that this year. area going nuts i mean I, i'm seeing pictures of pod i mean i'm seeing uh, social media posts from absolutely everybody that seemed to has ascended like the plague on Montana and especially Yelltone. So how do you deal with it? I mean, are you having traffic jams and are you having like, you know, crashes and uh, New Jersey people screaming at each other now? So what's the deal? Pretty much. And one of the ways I deal with it is by not going to things like the rodeo. I try to never go north of the grocery store into town. You know, <laughs> you, you grow up back east and you get used to the traffic in here now. You know, we have two street lights, and, and if the cars are backed up, I get all itchy and can barely take it, start throwing things at the dashboard. So I, <clears throat> I try to hide out like the Unabomber. There was a reason why he lived in Montana, you know, uh, and, and just get away from some of the stuff. But yeah, the, the park's nuts. So when I'm when I've been guiding in the park, I, I've been meeting my clients at 6 a.m., not just because it's been hotter than hell, but so we can actually get through that gate without having to wait an hour to do it. Um, that I, Nobody's ever seen crowds like this. Not here. Crazy, crazy. Well, hey, you know, people get out, but man, uh, you know, when I used to go out to Paradise Valley, it was, it was pretty laid back and I fished the Spring Creeks and to please Armstrong and Nelson's and I'm sure it's just crazy right now. So, you know, that's cool. I mean, uh, you know, everybody needs the money and uh, the economy needs to be booming again. So uh, I hope you survive. But, you know, let's 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 uh, let's get into the um, the meat and potatoes of this thing. The dry fly stalker. Um, it's the subject is called not all big browns eat meat. And, uh, uh, you know, and and I think, you know, you are so known for your dry fly prowess in what you've done. I remember your true form hooks you designed, which were really an interesting design on your mayflies and sulfurs. And you gave them to me one time when I came up to, when you were at the, um, the headwater, what was it? The, 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 the border waters fly shop. And border you, the, yeah. True form hooks were they for, they were for Daiichi, right? I think they were for Daiichi. Yeah. Daiichi still produces them. It's the Daiichi 1230. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a phenomenal hook. And, and the tie was so brilliant in the way that the mayfly stood up and it's it just uh it, you were just an innovator from the early times but you know we're going to talk a lot about you know big browns eating dry flies um you know uh, tr big trout in general um some you know uh, i think when you really think about it and i look i quote a lot of cecil heox's he had he had a the complete brown trout book and he was i think a a professor and biologist at cornell university and and he wrote a pretty cool book for Nick Lyons, who was my mentor back in the day and taught me a lot of things on writing and got me published in Fly Fisherman for the first time, which you've written a ton on on Fly Fisherman magazine also. Uh, I'm sure most people listening have, have read your stuff there. Um, but, you know, he, he said something, um, one quote that always stuck in my mind. He said, to the dry fly fisherman, the brown trout is the wariest, wiliest, most fascinating and challenging and most respected and best loved trout of all. And that sort of sums it up because, um, you know, everybody loves big brown trout. Everybody wants to catch a big brown trout. You know, I've been guiding for 27 years now. You've been guiding for decades also. Um, you mentioned, uh, hey, hey, dude, do you want to go catch a 20-inch brown on a dry? And, and, you know, I'm in. I mean, people never say, no, I don't want to do that. I have no desire. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 
And, and uh, you know, bottom line is not all, you know, the, the big misnomer, and we're going to talk about misconceptions and stuff, but the big misnomer is that, you know, once a brown trout turns 15, 16 inches, it's just totally focused on carnivorous activity, nighttime activity, only eats be, uh, big meat, you know, big uh, sculpins and mice and, and even small ducklings. That's great. And we talked about that with Tommy Lynch. Um, but, you know, I think uh, the brown trout are like the chameleons out of all the fish is they could jump from one stage of selectivity from eating big meat to going to tiny micro size 24 trichos and midges. Um, you know, what, you know, what, what's your take on, you know, you, um, you have a lot of interesting takes, but over the years, what is a pattern you see with these fish that, that is so different from other trout? Sure. I, you know, I think one of the big things about big fish is that they're abnormal, right? I, they're not everywhere. And they do certain things that allow them to get that size before a, a heron or a bald eagle eats them or, or some guy takes them home for dinner. So they tend to live in, in difficult spots. They tend to eat in particular their ways and and uh, I think maybe it's a little luck of the draw a little bit of genetics but I also like to tell a story about it I was fishing the lower east branch of the Delaware and I had three fish rising in front of me and the two two of them I caught you know with pretty pretty quickly on on a on dry flies and the third one kept rising and and I couldn't catch it and I spent I don't know probably a half hour screwing around with this fish uh, before I caught it. And when I ultimately did, it was a 13 inch brook trout. So on that particular day, this, this little brook trout made these two 15, 16 inch brown trout seem, seem like dummies. So I, I guess there's just certain inbred things and, and individual fish. You and I were just talking yesterday about a big brook trout you've been messing with, yeah. um, you know, that, that they, they develop techniques, whether it's purposeful or on accident that helps them to survive and get big. And if you want to catch those fish, you've got to do things differently than other fishermen. You know, most people go out and just start casting dry flies to, to rising fish or start blind casting. If you want to catch big fish, you have to find big fish and you have to hunt them. And you have to ignore a lot of smaller fish and you have to ignore the ribbon from your buddies that tell you that I caught 12 today and you only caught one. And uh, you have to make a conscientious decision to, to target those fish. I, I talk about that in that new book about called dry fly strategies about making pace for your day, creating a pace and understanding what you want to achieve on your day of fishing. And I, I tell some stories about Charlie Mech in there. Charlie uh, was a wonderful, terrific angler, but he, he really didn't care about catching big fish. Charlie cared about catching fish. He, they were all good to him. He, he just liked to go out and catch trout. So I, I asked him once, uh, you know, Charlie, if you could catch one 24-inch brown trout or, or five 12-inchers, what would you what would you do? And he said, I'd take the 12-inchers. I like the action. And uh, for me, I'm I'm sort of all over the place. Some days I feel like the action. Some days I feel like I just want to try to catch a big guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was talking to you yesterday when we were talking about the podcast, and I was on a little tiny spring creek, um, and I was chasing this one big brookie. I mean, he's in his, his mid-teens for a brook trout. And, um, you know, I, 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 I walked up on my hands and knees through this jungle in the Manistee Forest on this little tiny spring creek that's ice cold. And I knew him. I've been trying to chase him for two years now. And and I, it's always the first or second cast he'll come up to the fly. 
And I swear to God, I had him yesterday. I threw on this little tiny beetle juice beetle. And uh, the moment it plopped the water, that sucker came right up. And I swear to God, he took the fly and I set the hook and there was nothing there. And I was <laughs> devastated. And I, I, you know, I, I'm like, you know, like Charlie a little bit, I guess when we get older, we, I, I spent all my time on my little two and three weights and my little bushy little spring creeks chasing these little wild browns and wild brookies. And, you know, I, I'm going to have uh, Tom Rosenbauer on the show and, and he says, I, I'll be happy to be on there, but I can't talk about big browns. I talk about little browns cause that's all I catch. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's like you eventually get to a point where, you you it's a it's nice that you're talking about you know prioritizing and making goals and setting up a strategy for what you do because there's some days where you just want to go out and catch small beautiful wild trout and then there's some days man I'm going to get that guy and he's been giving me the finger forever and ever and for sure. big 20 inch pig donkey true to source I like to call him whatever you want and, and it's it's really nice to prioritize stuff like that and then set your own personal benchmarks um which everybody seems to have, you know, in all the years of guiding, I, you know, I always, you know, ask why I said, what's your biggest brownie you ever caught? They're like, well, I caught this, you know, 18 inch brownie on the, uh, Osable in New York, uh, Osable. And, um, everybody has that benchmark. What, what is your personal best benchmark for a brown trout? It probably came from the Delaware, I would think. <laughs> it did come from the Delaware. I, so when it comes to stuff like that, I, I sort of discount anything that grew up in a still water fishery. So like it, anything coming out of the great lakes, anything from a, a, a big lake, I, I don't count them because they're just different. They're, they're not lesser, but they're just different. So when I think about big trout, I think about a pure river fish or pure stream fish that has, has the attain size in, in, in the waterway in which they're in. And the biggest one, I've ever landed was probably just a little over 24 inches. It was on the upper East branch of the Delaware uh, during the Brown Dray catch right before dark. And there was a spinner fall and the fish came up. You know, one of the things about finding these big fish is the spot in which I caught that I had caught large fish there before. So it seems to be important that once these fish figure out how to get big and how to live they like to pick to stay in in particular areas and if you catch a big fish in a spot one year there's probably a pretty good chance you'll find a fish like that later unless a flood changes the river or something like that happens and uh i i, I caught this guy in a spot that i caught some 19 20 inch fish in in previous in previous years right right beside an island yeah that's yeah. Well, you know um my personal best was a 24-incher on a, on a small spring creek in the Driftless area in Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, which has so many little spring creeks. When I fished, you know, the Cumberland Valley in Pennsylvania, I thought that was God's country. And then when I moved to the Midwest and I finally made it up to the Driftless, I mean, there's literally hundreds of spring creek that all look like, you know, the Latour, Big Spring, Falling Springs, Spring Creek and State College. And they're like in every little valley, they call them coulees. The French call them a little coulees. It's where the glaciers came through. And I caught a 24-inch brown on my WMD, my Weapons of Midge Destruction Midge, <laughs> which I call it. I like that name. Um, but it was feeding after the trico hatch on the Kickapoo uh, Spring Creek. And um, I caught him like skittering it just like it, it shouldn't have taken it, but it just sort of did. And it was like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It was really hot. And luckily the water was like still freezing. It was like 49, 50 degrees. But 
Um, that was my biggest, the 24 incher on six cents in a weedy spring Creek. That was like Nirvana for me. And then last year, uh, in the COVID year, I caught a 27 incher on the Great Drake Spinner Fall, two bends up from our lodge at 10 o'clock awesome. in the morning. Um, at 10 o'clock in the morning. So my other biggest one came at one o'clock in the afternoon on a Spring Creek. The other one came at a 10 o'clock in the morning spinner fall on a sort of cloudy morning day. Um, and those are my two best. So leads me into my next uh, thing is uh, let's talk big brown trout misconceptions about the dry fly. And uh, that goes to, like most people think, um, you know, especially East Coasters, um, that big brown trouts only feed at nighttime. And, um, you know, I had the bug, uh, the night stalker, Tommy Lynch, in the first um, episode. This is episode, by the way, of, of a 10-part series, The Brown Trout Hunters. But um, that misconception is being broken. I mean, I caught my two best. Um, you could catch a big brown on the Delaware out in Montana uh, during the daytime. Um, What's your whole theory about big browns feeding at nighttime? Sure. So brown trout, a big brown trout to me is like trying to, to hunt a, a big bull elk or a, a big whitetail buck. They adjust to pressure. So for instance, on, on the Yellowstone here, when we're guiding, when during uh, the pre-runoff period and, and right when runoff is ending, when you have all these giant salmon flies and nymphs and the dries near the, the stream banks, Every boat goes down and they, they, they blind cast similar flies along the stream banks and they catch fish and they catch some big brown trout while doing that. Well, we get into this period now where the water's low and we're in summer. I'm not saying it's impossible, but those big brown trout that, that in the spring were a little bit dumber and, and hung on those, those shallow areas near shore, they're not there anymore. They move into places where they're not going to get hooked so much. So half the time you can go down and you'll, you'll catch smaller fish, but you won't catch those big guys in spring. They find a better place to be. I think that's one of the things that um, people sometimes don't understand is that throughout the course of a year, a trout doesn't live in exactly the same place. So unless it's in a spring creek or, or a stable waterway. So as opposed to what I was just talking about, looking for sort of general areas where large brown trout could be fine, which, which remains true. Throughout the season, it can change. Even throughout the day, it can change. Fish will move into slots at the tails of pole under low light conditions to feed on a hatch when it's starting. But they won't be there at, at noon generally because if they are a heron or a bald eagle will whack them. Uh, so, so you need to be able to adjust and, and to look for these fish. And it's another thing in the book. I, I talk about just trying to, how, how to identify large fish, if that's what you're really after, uh, by their rise forms or, or where they're living. And, uh, you know, that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. Cool. I mean, um, I always like to look back to a comment, uh, Dom Juliana, uh, talked about, um, in, in her, uh, Fly Fishing with an Angle Treatise, uh, which was technically written by Isaac Walton, which has said that there's no such thing as Dom Juliana, as most people say that maybe Theodore Gordon was some fictitious uh, little um, elf that lived in the Catskills, whatever. But, um, you know, Dom Giuliani always said um, that, in quote, the trout and salmon are quick to rise to the float. Um, and you and I know that it means not eating strike indicators, which sometimes they do. We could talk about the dummy, the, the blooper side of big brown trout selectivity. Um, but um, 
quick to rise to the float, um, which meant that the floating fly at that time. And, um, you know, a lot of misconceptions are big browns only feed on big hatches. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, when you have a green, green drake hatch on Penn's Creek, when you have a green drake hatch out west on, on, on the Henry's Fork, on, on some, on the, on some of the bigger, uh, you know, tailwaters, um, or you have like the gray drake hatch here or the hexagenia hatch here, which brings out some big browns at night in the evening and nighttime. Uh, is it true that they only rise to big hatches? Um, so why are, why are, you know, browns caught on, uh, little 18, 20 sulfurs in the Delaware, the Centroptilla Mountain, Montana, trichos, midges. I just wrote a, a blog on trichos, um, how important they are and how big, you know, big browns up to 20 plus will rise to them on Silver Creek out in Idaho. You go out there and it's, you'll see some pigs as long as your leg eating trichos all day long. Um, so it's back to this whole chameleon behavior, this whole Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, this elusive, wary, uh, picky, snooty. I always look at big browns in a dry fly sense, um, like that kid in school that always, in, in grade school, that always sat in the corner and had an attitude and nobody could get near him. Nobody could talk to the kid. He always was was grumpy and snooty and never liked anything the teacher did, never liked any food he got. That's what I look at a big brown trout, sort of like that that coy little guy, you just want to get into his mind, but he just doesn't want any affection whatsoever. And back to the hatch thing, um, you know, so out West, I mean, so the big intriguing thing, so we got, you, you and I know this whole East Coast fishery. We understand how they feed on, on the big tail waters like the Delaware. And from you going to the little spring creeks in PA to the big D was sort of like a compens uh, total circumference of all the venues um, and you saw how these fish could take tiny flies as well as big flies. Big flash hatches will bring up big fish because of the sheer amount of, of, of uh, caloric ingestion that they're taking in and the least amount of energy explained. So a big brown that's going to eat um, 800 to 1,000 trichos in a morning, um, in, in, in 15, 20, 30 minutes, he could get that, that caloric energy from eating you know, a big green drake, brown drake, or a or a hex hatch, but um, out west is 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 really interesting. And you probably have have redesigned some of your thinking the way brown trout feed out there. Um, it's a lot different from the east coast. And and how how do you if you had to like a couple ideas on how 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 different big browns are out there from the east coast, or maybe they're not. Maybe you see no difference whatsoever. Um, enlighten our uh, listeners on, on that. Sure. Um... I absolutely. First, I agree with what you're saying about hatches. You know, for a, a big brown trout to eat bugs on the surface, it has there has to be a caloric benefit to the fish, right? So if he's if he's going up there to pick off three trichos, he's burning more calories than he's taking in, and that fish is going to perish. He's not he's going to starve to death. So they don't do things like that. So if they can go up and grab a salmon fly or several or a whole bunch of trichos or a whole bunch of little olives, that's when they tend to do it. The other time you can, every once in a while, you can see a cruising big fish where for whatever reason, most of the fish aren't feeding, but he's bopping around in foam lines and picking off various stuff. There may not be enough of any one thing for him to get his caloric or calories that he needs, but he can pick off all this various stuff in the, in the filming and get it there. Um, here, everything 
You know, brown trout to me are just, they're arguably the, the fish that's most sensitive to, to pressure. So I, I have a friend named Matt Grove who probably catches more big brown trout in the state of Montana than anybody I know. And, and Matt does it in specific ways. First, he targets them. He goes out just to catch big fish. And second, he goes to these little streams that nobody ever talks about. He calls them Matt's Creeks. And, uh, you know, he, he shared a couple with me, but, but if he doesn't bring up the name, I won't even ask. So, um, and he just catches these huge fish and they're not, they're not that difficult in these streams. We, we were fishing one of his little secret streams together one time and it wasn't on a dry fly, but it was a nymph and he had uh, a nymph. He was Euro nymphing down through this run. And I watched him hook the same two foot brown trout three times. It just kept eating, even though he had hooked it, lost it the first two times. I'd never seen anything like that. That Fish don't receive immense pressure. They become easier to catch. Uh, that's why here in the again in the early spring when when everything's good and the water's great that that's your best chance to catch big brown trout in montana by the time the summer comes those those fish are just they, they go nocturnal um a lot of the times or, or they just feed first thing in the morning or, or right before dark um maybe you can get a rainstorm that colors up the water some and you know present streamer opportunities but once again when the fall comes around and they start thinking about spawning and they start getting those those urges as winter comes and they got to put on some 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 uh some weight to get through the winter you know those brown trout become more targetable and you start seeing them come out but it, but i also wonder how what the correlation is with pressure because generally vacations are over kids are back in school far fewer people are on the streams in general in the fall. And, and I think those fish respond, respond to pressure. Um, and as Montana versus central PA or, or versus the Delaware, you know, the one big advantage we have here is, is of course we have the pews and, and Nelson's and Armstrong spring creeks. And I particularly love the pews. I I'm on it a whole lot during the course of the year, but most of our brown trout fisheries are, you know, are more turbulent water, which, which makes it a little easier, you know, not necessarily stuff like the bighorn, which, which is still a big tailwater, but we have tons and tons of fisheries where, where brown trout don't get as, uh, as much of a chance to think about whether or not they want to eat. They're not laying in a glassy smooth pool like they are on, on spring Creek in central PA or on, on the West branch mm -hmm. of the Delaware. They got to make a snap decision and, and do it. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. I think that it goes into my next uh, next little topic here. I mean, uh, our our total uh, on the East Coast, we, we noticed that brown trout um, definitely have an infatuation with surface feeding, which is that whole Salmo connection back to Juliana and, and Halford and Skews back in the days of the Springies. But the, it, on our rivers, on the East Coast, Midwest, they prefer slower water. And those lower, slower, flatter sections, those big eddies, as they call them in the Catskills, those big flats, is where you're going to find these big browns cruising. And their, their preoccupation, infatuation with the surface window, the meniscus, where they're feeding, they have plenty of time to scrutinize, especially on the Big D, you know, on the Delaware. I mean, they get it all in the Missouri, the Missouri. That's why it seems like this week everybody uh, in the Delaware is out on the Missouri. <laughs> 
If I, know, yeah. I know Joe Sabios is out there. JC's out there. Everybody's like all the all the Delaware misfits are out in the Missouri right now. So they're they're all doing that stuff. But it's those long flats um, that you know they're they're still always preoccupied with the service. And in my Brown Trout Nexus book, um, which I I was crazy enough to write a whole book about Brown Trout. Great book. Um, but, uh, well, thank you so much. Um, I was the you know I was fishing this little tiny uh, little Spring Creek uh, Spring Creek Freestone Fusion River I like to call it, rivers that have Freestone uh, Spring Creek influences Fusion rivers uh, that came off the Baltic Sea uh, the Viepsha River which came through our farm property when I lived in Poland between the ages of eight and ten and uh, um, it had these beautiful wild brown trout in them and we built a treehouse which was the first uh, chapter introduction to the book. And we watched these brown trout feed in the pool. And it, it seemed like no matter how deep in the pool or in the strata, what strata they were, mid-strata or the benthic strata really down low, they always were noticing what was going on the surface. I mean, you'd see the smallest damselfly, the smallest moth just skim the surface. And that brown trout would race up seven, eight feet out of nowhere and, and, and take a look at it or, or be interested in it. So they're, 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 they're peripheral, peripheral and vertical, horizontal, ver, uh, you know, vertical vision is so strong that they're always looking up. And my theory for a long time was that it, they, they, they like to tend out to hang out in slower, more moderate current, lazy. They're actually lazy fish. They don't like to expend a lot of energy. Sure. Uh, on the east coast faster water will have rainbows and brookies and slower water will have the big browns and in the lower sections and that's why they get so big because they're in more fertilized sections but um so you know this this whole infatuation that i could see no matter what level i'm at and on that little viepsha spring creek taught me about that and then you're saying uh on the other hand um that they, they they tend to be in these bigger faster water like like the big hole and i fish the big hole quite right. um it, it doesn't make sense from an East Coast standpoint that they'd be in that kind of water. Uh, explain a little bit about that. I mean, why why do you think that's the case? I think sometimes they're they're given what they're given. I mean, the the Madison is a great brown trout fishery, and, and yeah. there isn't a whole lot of slow water in the Madison. Yeah. So uh, you know, trout are amazingly adaptive. If they weren't, we would have wiped them off the face of the earth like the carrier pigeon a long time ago. So they figure out how to survive in, in, in whatever place they're at. I, I do agree with you 100%, though, that if they have their druthers and they, they can pick a slow, easy-moving spot where they get to watch everything they do, and they can become incredibly selective. I, I was fishing the, the Delaware main stem years ago, and I watched three sulfurs come down about six inches apart right in front of me. And I watched this big brown trout rise off the bottom of the river, and he goes up and he looks at the first one and he drops back below it, goes up, looks at the second one, drops that down below it, goes up and looks at the third one, drops down below it and then charges forward and eats the first one. Now, none of those flies twitched. They didn't move. They did nothing. But something in his brain made him look at And they were three natural. Try to get him to eat your fly when it's got a hook sticking out its butt, when when he's refusing real live actual mayflies in the water. Um, but brown trout can afford to do that if they're living in a slower pool where they get all the time in the world to to scrutinize what's coming down. And, and I think they get caught less often. I think fish also especially in our days of catch or release, they 
they're aware of being caught. If if they get caught in a place, maybe they they move from it after getting caught too many times. Find places where they're less hassled. Yeah, that's 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 really good points. You know, um, you know, Theodore Gordon sort of changed um, the whole dry fly design concept. So when you looked at a lot of these, uh, a lot of the flies that Halford and the guys in Marriott and the guys in, in England were designing back at the turn of the 1800s into the 1900s, um, when Gordon was confronted with these, these, this German invasion of brown trout. So the brown trout were, as you know, and I talk a lot about in my Nexus book, and, but when they were brought to the Catskills, nobody liked them. I mean, they, there was anti-German sentiment with World War I uh, going sure. around. Um, they were like the curse, and there were like bag limits, like kill as many as you can because they're like, they're like uh, these exotic predators that we, we don't want them here. They're not our American trout. Our American trout are the brook trout. And, um, and, and I think main, uh, the most of it was because they were tough to catch. They were just more selective than the brookie where brookie would take a tandem of four wet flies from England stuck on a, you know, on, on a, on a horse hair silk thread. And these fish were like, uh, uh-uh, I don't want nothing. So, you know, Gordon got into the quill body, which is more the way Mayfly looks. He got into the hackle design, the way it was upright. So he figured out that whole brown trout surface feeding and, 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 and that shaped modern selectivity. But, um, it goes into another thing that you talk about in, um, you know, you, you always talk about a pressure and pressure, pressure is everything. And that's what drove a lot of selectivity was pressure because I fished a lot of pressure waters. And that's so important because a brown trout will figure it out much quicker than a lot of other fish, right? I've caught the same rainbow 20,000 times. <laughs> but, but on less pressured water, I think their desire to accumulate so much caloric intake and their, their gluttonous, almost ridiculously insane um, pension to just eat as much as they can um, drives them into a couple stupid modes where I'll be caught once or twice, but then I'm going to, Oh my God, I'm not going to do that again. And then they get into that, that kid in the corner of the school. that doesn't want anything, doesn't want to eat anything. And, um, it, it, to me, it seems like it's, it's a fish that it wants something it can have. Uh, I do a lot of Atlantic salmon fishing around the world and, and Salmo Solar, Salmo Truda are the same beast. They got this mentality, this mindset that they're sometimes impossible to catch. And then at times they will take the most bizarre pattern that you've ever could imagine. And it's like that, that psycho behavior of, I want Dr. Jekyll, I, I want something that I can't have some unorthodox fly that, you know, when I started guiding and I look at people's fly boxes and I was a snooty guy that fished Delaware and fished Pennsylvania. And I thought I knew everything and people would show me their fly boxes and they're like, uh, no way that's going to work. No way it's going. And then they, they throw it on just to spite me. And they catch the biggest (laughs) fish brown trout that ever, never in my life I thought would take that fly. What's your experiences with that? Um, that it wants something they can't have. Just throw on the craziest parmachine bell and just throw it out there and the damn thing has it. Do you think that they're actually figuring out that I've seen every PM, I've seen every PMD, I've seen every uh, bluing olive emerger, I've seen every sulfur emerger, I'm going to take the most bizarre pattern. I'm up in Stylesville where I've been pounded by 10,000 million <laughs> flies in the, in the sulfur hatch and I'm going to take... Um, you know, uh, a sable wolf in the middle of the daytime. What, what's your theory on that? And what's your experience with that? Sure. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I agree with what you're saying. So, you know, I think that's probably, it comes down to pressure again. And, and that's, that's the truth 
dude, if you ever fished a, a, a stream section on the Delaware, we used to always joke, you never want to do the same float on a guide trip two days in a row, because if it was good yesterday, it'll be terrible today. And, and if it was terrible yesterday, it'll probably still be terrible tomorrow. So, but, uh, <laughs> fish see your flies there there are i mean there may be 1500 of them or there may be five of them in a pool but but there is a limited number of fish and out of those fish only a certain number of one of those will surface feed on any given day so when if you're showing the same flies day after day the fish that are genetically predispositioned to be the ones that want to rise because not every fish well i don't believe that every fish eats off the surface its entire life i think some quit uh, um but you know i don't know that's just a guess so i think showing them something different so showing them something they haven't seen i i mean how many when you got sulfur hatches on the upper upper west branch the last two months how many sulfur paradons can you throw at the same fish day after day after day before they're just not going to eat it anymore that's why you know a lot of guys up there will will throw ant patterns and things like that just something and it's the same here in montana when i'm guiding in the park i like to tell everybody there, there's three seasons of dry fly fishing in yellowstone national park it's it's chubby season when I only tie on a chubby for probably the first month. Then it's hopper season when I only tie on hoppers. And then you have the third season. And that's what, when you throw on anything you hope they haven't seen during the first two seasons. So any, you know, I've fished Charlie Mex Patriot dry flies and the humpies and Royal wolves and, and, you know, many iterations of any of those things, just to try to show them something that they haven't seen 50,000 times. Yeah. He did yeah. Charlie Mech um, uh, designed that Patriot fly because that got a lot of lot of credit recently. Uh, you know, with all the the nationalistic movement in the country, and the Patriot flies seem to have a second re re you know revolution of uh, rediscovering. Uh, was he the original designer? I can't remember who who was who. Char yeah, Charlie designed the Patriot. Um, he read a study that. Uh, a biologist did about the way that trout see color and about how that they were attracted to the color blue. So he designed a, you know, his take on basically a Royal wolf and only making the, the body out of, out of blue materials, which he used ultimately used small blue crystal flash. But I remember Charlie telling me one time he, he was on a trip in New Zealand and, and the fish were just crushing his Patriots, he and a friend, and they ran out of Patriots. So they, they took a, a part one guy's blue shirt to take the thread out of it to have material to be able to tie some extra Patriots to keep on fishing in New Zealand. Wow. And one of my one of my favorite stories about the Patriots. So I not long after I uh, I moved to New York, you know, Patriots in Central PA, everybody fishes them all the time. Up there, you heard about how everything has to be this ultra realistic hatch matching pattern. And and I'm on the lower East Branch, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to fish. Just like I would in, in Central PA on the Little Junietta River. I'm going to drop a, an olive caddis larva off a Patriot. And sure enough, that Patriot comes swimming past a, a boulder and a big brown trout comes up and nabs it. You know, you, you, you tell people that, that have 
been counting the the number of legs on their sulfur patterns for two months and, and making sure their hair is brushed and, and the flies are shaved before they throw them out there because the fish could be that picky. And, and on that given day, they came up and ate a Patriot, just, just like what you've been talking about. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting, you know, um, photophobic light. I, I'm, I'm a big, you know, I'm, I talk about, you know, the photophobic tendencies that they don't like light. And, uh, you know, um, there's a, there's a, you know, the theory on why brown trout love to feed on hatches and everybody's like, I'm going to go fish the evening hatch tonight. I'm going to go fish the evening hatch. What time do you want me to pick you up for the evening hatch? Uh, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've always, you know, there's always been, uh, my theory is that do, do brown trout so are so preoccupied with evening hatches that they, is it the fact that the light starts to go down? So they start to come out and venture around and start to predate and look at predation and start eating and therefore they find the evening hatch and it's sort of the theory of what came first the chicken or the egg you know is it the hatch that's bringing them out or is there just coming out because they're just waking up from their afternoon naps because they hate sunlight and then as soon as it starts getting dark they're out there prowling and then there's the evening hatch with the mayflies come out or the caddis or the stoneflies whatever um, it, would you would you say that in your experience with them that on 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 cloudy cloudier days rainier days and especially on the Delaware I learned that theory cloudier rainier days I, I'm going to get a, a better chance at some big browns on sunnier days I'm going to catch more rainbows uh, and then there's days it really doesn't matter uh, what's your theory on that I, I honestly Matt I think it's season specific and probably water temperature and pressure specific because how many I mean. The, the Hendrickson, right? It's the gentleman's hatch because it's you know, 11 till two, right? And there's big brown trout out there in the middle of the day sipping Hendrickson's off, but it's because that's when the Hendrickson's are there. When you get into the summer months and the water temperatures are elevated, and it's another thing that Charlie Meck talked about that the, uh, he had a book called The Hatches Made Simple, and he talked about so generally darker colored mayflies hatch during the day lighter colored mayflies hatch closer to evening so in the summer months the lighter colored mayflies are are, are more common and they tend to not hatch till they get a little cover of darkness to to stop you know birds from eating them and everything else so that's when the fish feed but my biggest question is whenever you and i would meet to fish junction pole in the delaware and we knew nothing was going to rise till like eight o'clock at night why did you have me meet you at 11 and then force feed me vodka for the next 17 hours while we waited for fish to rise later? That, that's what I'd like to know. Well, yeah. That's something Polish. Polish I don't know. Um, it, it seems like uh, you have to have that, that, uh, that uh, Zen arm of, of having a few cocktails, a few, uh, uh, you know, shots of vodka to go out there, but we tended to <laughs> level and we cranked out Pink Floyd and we drank bottles. I mean, got a little crazy to the point, but actually we made us better fishermen. At least I knew I got better. Maybe you didn't get it with me, but um, I had some of my best. Yeah, life. So it was kind of crazy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, one of us got better uh, the more the vodka disappeared. One of us got questioned the next day in the, in the fly shop. I had a customer say, did I see you out there beating a bamboo rod against the surface of the water when you missed a trout? It's <laughs> like, yeah, I don't. That has to be the vodka would be my guess. So, yeah, yeah Matt, well, <laughs> I do credit your Polish DNA. 
oh my God, it was crazy. And then, you know, uh, oh, we got into, I got an argument with some guy because he said I was getting close to him. And Jesus Christ, I was like 50 yards, 100 yards away from him. And he told me to go to Karen's pool. And I wanted to just go at him. And I think he pulled me back because I was ready to go face, face to face, fisticuffs with this guy. But that's what shirtless, shirtless if I remember correctly. Yeah. I, I believe you were shirtless in the middle of this. Yeah, I probably was. You know, trying to soak up as much so soak up as much sun rays so I could get more skin. You know, it was, it was kind of crazy. But hey, we're gonna take a break right now. And um we, we we had some heated discussion here, which is lovely, and I'm just enjoying this to the immensely. Um and we're gonna take a little break and then we're gonna come back and have a uh, entertain a question from one of our of our uh, subscribers. So uh Stay tuned, we'll be right back. Okay, we're back and we have a question. We're with Paul Weimer, the dry fly guru. And uh, we have a question from one of our Hollowed Waters Journal subscribers, uh, our magazine, The Passion and Journey for Fly Fishing for Trout, Salmon and Steelhead. Um, www.hollowedwaters.com. Come and join the journey. We'd love to have you. So we have a person, uh, Derek M. from Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, he says, I fly tail, um, I fly fish tailwaters, freestone rivers in the Berkshires, Green Mountains, and Adirondacks. The big browns can be super selective. Is fly choice the most important size presentation? Uh, your advice is appreciated. Uh, geez, Derek, um, that is a huge question that uh, Paul could write a book on it. I could probably write three books on it um, just because I like to write a lot of words. Um, but uh, that, yeah, that's a tough one to answer. But I would say, I, you, I know if you're fishing the Adirondacks, the Green Mountains, the Catskills, they're mostly freestone rivers. Um, I, I would personally say um, you're going to probably be hatch matching. But if you're fishing like a brawling river like the Asable, which is Fran Better's River, where he came up with those beautiful patterns like the Asable Wolf, the Usual, the Haystack, a lot of attractor patterns will work, even the Patriot um for big browns and i think it's timing and everything that we've talked about uh you know uh, everybody gave me a lot of grief about selectivity that i i've i've overanalyzed it to death and and paul it, when you did your rice farms column you said you know sometimes it's about pressure and it's just not we we read too much anthropomorphisms into these fish and it just if you put too much pressure on them, they're gonna get kind of crazy and then you know Somebody like Rosenbar said it's about, it's about the size matters, presentation, color doesn't matter, color is folklore, uh, presentation, presentation. Um, it's There's so many variables there. I think you have to look at specific situations, specific water types, and 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 I think if you you focus on that, uh, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have to dive a lot deeper than a simple answer like size or presentation. What's your thought on that, Paul? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with everything you say. I, of all those factors, to me, color is by far the least important of any of them. You know, I, I believe in color shades. So if fish are eating a, uh, a natural that's black, you don't want to throw one that's white. But if you threw one that's gray, it'd probably just be fine. Uh, 
I talked to, I mentioned this in my dry fly book. I, I talked to a guy in a fly shop in state college when I was working for TCO fly shops. And, uh, he was all disappointed because he'd been fishing the sulfurs on the little Juniata river that night. And he said that he must not have had the wrong, the right color pattern because everybody else was, was catching fish around him and he didn't, wasn't catching any fish. And I, I asked him if you really believe that, that it was the color of the dubbing you used. And he said, yeah. And I said, so were you with all those people that were fishing? He said, no, there were a whole bunch of cars, lots of people. I said, so you think every single person you saw on that stream that night had bought the exact same color of dubbing from the exact same place <laughs> and all had to be with the exact same materials. Yeah, and that's why they yeah. got <laughs> Right. And he just sort of looked at me stunned for a little bit and he said he hadn't really thought of that. So you know color to me and mayflies will often darken as as they're exposed to oxygen uh freshly hatched duns can be like you know you just wrote a, an awesome thing about isonychia and and isonychia sometimes on the delaware some of them come off they have an olive sheen and after they've been out in the air for 15 minutes they look more burgundy in color so things mm -hmm. change so um fish i just don't believe they're that that driven that way uh you know fly size if if the fish are real picky you know sometimes it can be of benefit to go one size smaller than naturals if they're the hatch is so heavy that you can't get yours noticed sometimes it's advantageous to go one to two sizes larger than the naturals you're finding um but of all of those things to me presentation is it presentation 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 you know being slightly upstream of a fish employing a reach cast showing them the fly first ahead of your leader ahead of your tippet trying to get the the, the best drift possible i i think if you did that with the wrong flies you'd probably be a lot better off than somebody who had the right fly that they couldn't cast and couldn't get a good presentation yeah absolutely John. It, and it's so specific to so many situations but uh few general words of fun. You know, let's talk about niche feeding. I talk a lot about, you know, specific niche feeding um, that brown trout take on. Uh, you know, my good friend Bob Bachman, who I featured in my book, and I've talked to many times, and I, I'm sure you know Bob well, and you got to love Bob. He'll keep you on the phone forever. And he just got, for 90 years old, he's got so much enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, he, he did the, the Spring Creek studies from the treehouse on Spring Creek and watch trout behave and, and migrate and forage. Um, and I talk a lot about niche feeding under branches and difficult lies. Uh, Bachman always calls them the best table in the house. The big brown will always find that best table in the house and he'll seem to work out of that table. And if somebody catches him or he dies of old age or he moves on and migrates somewhere, another big brown will occupy that, that best table in the house. And, um, these little niches are are so are so critical. What's your experience with that? Yeah, that's that's something else I, I talk about in in my new dry fly book. So when my wife and I were first married, our first little house was was in a little small Pennsylvania town called Asheville, and there was a little trout stream that ran down through the woods, and I would go down there and fish. Well, there were overhanging trees and you would look back beneath them and there would be fish rising in this difficult difficult spot um 
and I would ignore those fish because I, I, I wasn't good enough to catch those until one day I went to the stream and the only fish I could find rising were those fish that were back under those trees. So I, I fired my best cast down there and sure enough, I ended up in a giant ball in the tree and got tangled off and got ticked off and broke it off and went home. So the next day I go back down there and the fish are rising underneath those trees and I fire a cast in. I end up right back in that same stupid tree for the second time. I break it off, but that time I, I decided I was going to figure out how to cast under there. So I stopped with no fly and just started throwing casts under those trees, even though the fish had long since quit rising. With the idea being that I wanted to be able to do that and get that cast in. Because you give yourself a great advantage on the trout stream. A lot of people don't want to lose. You know, flies are expensive. A lot of people don't feel like retying. They're out to have fun. They don't want to get frustrated. So they'll ignore the tough place that that Bob Bachman and you say that that the, the fish can sometimes be found feeding. And if you're one of the guys that can actually make those casts, you have a huge advantage. It doesn't matter if 10 people have fished the water in front of you. If they couldn't make that cast, couldn't cover that water, and you can. So so one of the big things in my dry fly strategies book, I, I talk to people about having planned on stream practice, you know, try things that you're not good at, because if you don't, you'll never get better at doing it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. A super, super important points. You know, um, so if you, if you think about it, you know, when you when you fish these big tailwaters, like, you know, like the, the Delaware and the Missouri and and San Juan and, and some of the other ones, Green and all those you know, there's, there's this, you see these big browns getting these garbage feeding mode. And, and I don't think anywhere more will you find garbage feeding modes than on like the Delaware for and the Missouri, which are so similar um, that, you know, uh, Johnny Miller, my good friend, the bug doctor, um, who always talks about they're on the feedback, they're on the garbage feeding mode. They're just plopping, they're moving from pool to pool or stretch of, stretch of pools to another stretch of pools. And they're just picking one of these off here, maybe an ISO here, maybe a bluing olive merger here, maybe a leftover shuck from a sulfur or a spinner. Um, this garbage feeding mode and satiating gluttony issues. Um, do you, it's, it's really interesting that um, when you see these, these fish um, just cruise along slowly and sip and sip and, and, and that dead drag, dead drifted fly always seems to be the presentation, uh, all of a sudden you switch your fly a little bit. And I noticed that on the big Delaware and the upper sections of the West branch, uh, one or two twitches will get their attention from all that dead drifting that they see. Um, you know, Gordon talked a lot about uh, study the bugs movement and learn its ways that imitate. Um, and too many people just fish dead drift, dead drift all the time, dead drift. You make your men, make your, you know, guide will teach you, oh, you got a men, you make your men. Um, and then, you know, you make that one or two twitch or you're, you're just reeling your fly in or something stupid happens where you get dragged and then a big brown takes it. What's your theory on twitch movements and adding, adding that movement to flies? Again, you know, I, I equate some of that with pressure mat. I, I think fish that get used to seeing artificial flies over their head, try not to eat them. Um, and, and they get very specific to movement. They, they want to see a proof of life. My wife and I were, were fishing the Yellowstone up in national, uh, in Yellowstone national park, uh, a few weeks ago when the salmon flies were rolling through there and we were watching brown trout come up and bump 
the salmon fly dries to see how the salmon fly dry reacted after they bumped it. And it, sometimes if they bumped it, you didn't touch it, it would float a little further and they would grab it. Sometimes they would bump it and then they want to see it move. They want to see it be afraid like a real bug would be before they before they would eat it. Um, also, brown drakes, again, on the Delaware River system, brown drake spinners have a, a weird tendency of, of sitting on the water. You know, most spinners lay their wings outstretched after they're spent. Brown drakes will sometimes keep their wings together. And it's almost like the last of their energy is, is quivering. And I was shining flashlights watching these come down and they would make little tiny ripples around the body of the bugs. Uh, as they sort of shuddered to keep their wings up for whatever reason. Well, I was certain that, that fish keyed on that movement. Um, and so instead of fishing my more flush floating flies, I went to like a Catskill fly, which you could skitter and, and just give subtle movements. A uh, friend of mine, Carl Gephardt, a uh, real well-known fly tire PA in, in the Catskills, he had a, a green drake pattern that he tied the wings with extra long saddle hackles. So any little breeze on the water would make them shudder a little bit and, and, and you know, maybe invoke the fish to, to come up and eat it. I think movement is especially important with large insect when you're amputating large insects that the trout can get a better look at and, and more easily decide that they're fake. You know, a satiation gluttony issues with big hatches. Um, you know, you t I know, you know, the English had a theory on, on their mayfly hatch, the Danica, and there was always a saying that the fortnight um, was always the best or third or fortnight. Don't forget for, forget about the first night. Um, it's always that third or fourth night that the that, that big browns tend to get really dialed into that hatch and really start getting familiar with the way they're they're emerging. Um, and and it seems like there's a certain point in the big hatch. Let's talk, you know, you like you just mentioned brown drakes, but let's talk about brown drakes, green drakes, gray drakes here, hexes, and these big mayfly hatches that go on for a couple of weeks at a time. It seems like there's a there's an initial when this first bug comes off, the browns are kind of scared of them. They don't really know how to deal with these big bugs because they've been feeding on minutiae or something. And then also they get dialed in and then satiation and gluttony issues come in. And then they're like just packing on so many pounds that um, they'll, they'll come up for, for 10 minutes and feed a little bit. And they start feeding in weird ways that like make no sense. You know, they'll take some craziness that's happening in the emergence cycle. And then by the end of the hatch, um, when it starts to wane, they, they start to get a little more aggressive again. What, do you have any experience with like the, those green drake, big green drake hatches or those big brown drake hatches in that, in that timing issue? Sure. I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right with, I, you know, we've, I think we've all caught fish before during some of those big heavy hatches and, and you, you get them into your boat and they start puking up insects all over the place there, or they have bellies that are so distended that, that, it, you know, <laughs> just because they've been feeding and feeding and feeding at some point in time, you know, a fish is going to get to a point where it can't fit any more food inside its its belly and it's going to have to digest for a period of time. Um, I also really think trout like stability. So when a hatch first gets started, trout aren't used to seeing it. So they don't want to eat it. They got to see an X amount, some unspecified amount of bugs over their heads. And then they decide, all right, this is what I'm eating. And then they eat that until they get satiated or, or until it starts to change. Um, 
And it's one of the reasons why people here, you know, you think about the salmon flies. A lot of guys will tell you that the best place to fish a salmon fly is, uh, is the mile below where they've already been, where the bugs are already passed up through because the fish are used to seeing them. They're not as satiated because there aren't so many around. And, and you know, let, let everybody else chase them up, up higher. Yeah. Great. Okay. That's, that's beautiful stuff. We're going to, we're going to go to another break and uh, we are going to be back with another question from one of our readers. And we are with Paul Weimer, the dry fly master and having a great time chatting about big brown trout. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back and we're going to take a question from Ian R., who is in Winchester, England. Um, we have a lot of readers um, in the UK and we're always uh, welcoming them. Um, he talks about our, our chalk streams get sedges, especially, and sedges, as you know, are caddis, especially with the warmer weather we've been having in the UK. We have little info on them, and Brits are always taught to fly fish upstream, mend, dead drift, but it's not working as much. Any help here to the UK? Um, that's an interesting question. It was just talking about movement and twitching, and I think it, this is a great question for this because uh, not all dry flies behave the same. Um, and since I came out to Michigan and I had the pleasure of fishing with Carl Richards here on the on the Big Muskegon, which is the sort of incubator of caddis hatches and all the books written on caddis hatches other than La Fontaine out in, out in Montana. Um, Carl and I have seen so much different movement of caddis pupa, the way they emerge, ovipositing females, how they're skidding the water and dropping eggs, uh, diving caddis, which I didn't really realize how much diving went on with the females that they actually dove underwater, went down, laid their eggs and came up and all these air bubbles that, that contributed to the Antron uh, air bubble design that La Fontaine had, had more to do really with diving females that were going down and coming up that had a lot of air already in their wings. Um, so I think when I saw caddis hatches, when I fished the lower test, I think it was a Timsbury beat. I saw some amazing sedge hatches in my, and my guide said, oh man, you don't want to mess with them. Those are bloody sedges. It was like anything that wasn't an iron blue or a pale water, they just don't want to mess with. But I was like, why can't we go fish for them? Well, we, we don't, we don't fish them bloody sedges. You know, <laughs> they're like another curse, like the white curse I talked about. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, I think movement is really important. Man. And, and for me fishing my caddis out here, my caddis patterns that I modeled off of Richard's earlier design, lines i'm always twitching them moving them jittering them spitching you know totally different than you fish a mayfly do you find that the same out in montana absolutely true you know of all the the big three insects mayflies caddisflies stoneflies caddisflies are almost in perpetual motion the only time you can get a caddisfly to sit still is if it's a species that overposits over the water and drops spent to the surface and, and like you said, uh, you know, so many people, mayflies, mayflies get all the glory, right? So that's what everybody wants to imitate. And most of the time they want to do it on a dead drift. So if, 
people get out of their comfort zone a little bit if they're in the middle of a sedge or caddis hatch when those mayfly tactics don't work, you know, uh, and and they're not as fun to fish. And, and caddis flies are so complicated and complex that there's so many species I, I wrote about, I believe is in the bug book that that entomologists believe there, there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of caddis species that have yet to be even be identified. So, uh, but they're vital to catching fish. Yeah, you know, I talk a lot. I mentioned Bjorn Janssen quite a bit um, in in my in my Nexus book, and he's the great uh, biologist uh, scientist from uh, from Norway, and he he wrote the, the beautiful uh, the Ecology of Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon book that I, I quote so much. But he he always called brown trout sit and wait predators. They sort of sit and wait for things to come to them, and they like get comfort zones. These these ideal tables, these ideal seats at the restaurant. Uh, and then I, I go into, I, I see them do a lot of roam, pick, eat, hide type style of predation. Uh, and you see that roaming tendency on big tailwaters. Um, you see these migrations up and down these long pools and then up to the next pool. And then you catch one brown trout two miles down river on a tailwater. And then a month later, you catch him four miles up river. And you could just sort of tell by the identification that he, he has certain marks on his body and stuff. Um, these migrations are really important. Um, and, and I find that twitching movement one or two on a flat tailwater pool or a flat freestone pool is so much more important to to get that curiosity out of a fish. Um, how do you, how do you find that? Do you find that more interesting to employ um, like on big freestone Montana rivers, like with the big stone fly hatch that you have, do you twitch them? Do you, do you jitter them a little bit? Well, what's your experience with that? Yeah, it depends on the water types uh, where you're fishing, Matt, you know, generally when I, when I'm imparting movement to my flies, it's often on big, slow tailwater pools, whether it's, the Missouri or the Delaware or on spring creeks like you know uh, spring creek in PA in Pennsylvania or Depew spring creek in Paradise Valley you know places where fish get a longer chance to look at it and 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 uh, can make a decision not to eat it on fast tumbling water you know sometimes the flies are, are through their feeding lane so quickly even if you did twitch it they may not even even have a chance to see it so just like you're saying i sort of focus on those those slower flatter waters yeah cool, yeah, cool. so uh, we're going to take another question uh from one of our hollowed waters readers and it's from uh peter g in boulder colorado um he says small flies midges trichos totally frustrate me welcome to the club uh, peter uh, <laughs> eyesight goes and i just wrote a thing a uh, blog about tricholicity and and how the first thing you got to do is have good glasses and um bifocal <laughs> and uh, magnifiers all these companies are selling magnifiers so yeah i mean people's people's eyes go early but you got to really good see see well um, but he says, I see, I see big brown sipping on tailwaters and I get really frustrated. I set the hook. There's nothing there. Um, I think you and I could write another book about just smutting rises, uh, as, pe as the British used to say. But, and then he says, any advice? So um, I'm going to just weigh in right now and say, I think one of the biggest problems with fishing minutia is hook gape size. And if you look at the old mustad size hooks, um, they're 24s and 22s and 26s. The gape is so small. By the time you put a lit, even thread on the damn things, there's, any, there's no room for that fish to 
to hook. And especially big browns that you see rising, first of all, they got, if it's a male, they got a pretty pronounced kite, not even big. Spawning season, obviously, it's very pronounced. But even during the year, there's a little kite there. There's a little gap there. So for you to set that hook, it has to be perfect. And I always talk about setting the hook down and low to right or left angles, depending on which fish way the fish direction is. If we hook hook uh, hook set straight up, we probably blow the hook set and, and don't hook the fish. So as Marinero talked about, you have to get that hook into that right or left side of the corner of that sort of soft tissue that's actually hard. Once that hook gets in there, it's not going to pop out. And thus Vince, I remember when he started to design the Vince Marinero uh, partridge midge hooks. They always had a big gape on them and the gape was kind of turned to the left side or right side. So it was angled at a slight angle to get more penetration. And then um, I've been using a, so much Daiichi hook and their specialty dry fly hooks are absolutely amazing because right now with my Trico's, I'm using their special 1140 Daiichi 1140 hook that has a wide gape in it but it has the body of a 24 or 26, and yet uh, it has that gape underneath. So I think that's one of the big problems you have. And then, of course, the refusals uh, is another one. But I think hook setting is a majority of it. And the smaller you go in hook size, you got to set that fly at a downstream low to the right or low to the low angle, where I almost instruct my clients to point their rod tips down towards the water and almost touch the water to use the water tension to set the hook. So that's one big problem. What do you think, Paul? I absolutely agree. That was the first thing that popped into my mind. I would say another big important component is using sharp hooks. So if you're fishing size 26 flies and maybe you're using 7X tippet, you can't put a lot of pressure on that hook set to, to get that into a fish's face. Like you said, a big brown trout that might have a, a kipe or or teeth and, and hard, hard mouths. So you need real super sharp hooks to be able to, when you gently lift a scent that, that hook to, to be able to stick them. And, you know, I watched a video, I, I, I wanted to, to find it again and, and I couldn't, but somebody shot some slow-mo videos. I believe it was on YouTube about fish taking dry flies and, when you watched it at normal speed, you would have swore every one of these fish took the guy's dry fly. And when they slowed it down and showed it, fish would come up, they would either push water back through their gills to spit it, they would come up and intentionally never close their mouths, almost like they wanted to feel it bump against their lips and, and go back down. So a, a lot of times we're, we're getting frustrated and we're thinking we're not getting good hook sets that the fish never really took our flies to begin with. And, uh, and that's one of the big tricky parts of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Still, uh, always resort to midge magic and all the stuff that Co Koch did in PA and Marinero's okay. work on, on little tiny small flies. And, uh, um, you know, they're, they're, they, they, the game of nods when, when, when guys would sit on the benches on the Latorte and watch trout rise. And it, the whole key was for you to get that trout to rise and, and it, they would use 8X, 9x 10x tortu which is a tippet material we imported from france back then um to get these fish to take you know uh so the whole tippet mystique with tiny flies is really important should i fish 6x should i not go to 7x should i go to 8x uh if you want to get really crazy you could get 11x from tortu in france um 
So they they went a little craziness up there in in PA to that whole to that whole theory about tippets and small flies. Um, if you want to catch a big brown trout, if you're going to go into seven x or eight x, your chances of landing that fish is going to be very limited. You have to be have a beautiful long flexible tip rod like a, a ten and a half uh, foot four weight or three weight. Uh, that's going to give you that flexibility. Um, but mainly, I think if you stick with 6X on most, on a lot of this minutia on big tailwaters and, and, and big freestone rivers, and if, if you present the fly correctly, if you set the correctly, um, what's, your, what's your theory, Paul? This is really interesting. What's your theory between 6 and 7X? Do you think it really makes that much difference? Is it more in 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 the selectivity of the fish that – they're, they're tippet wary, they're tippet, they're, you know, we always talk about tippet wariness and tippet chai and tippet this. And the difference for you with fluorocarbon and monofilament, that's another big one that people, I don't like to use fluorocarbon, man, because it's just a knot strength. I just think people don't tie their knots correctly and they always blame the fluorocarbon, right? So um, let's talk about tippet and flies for, for minutia for big browns and big trout in general. Sure. <clears throat> Let me start by saying, Saying, I, I think I own a spool of 7X. I haven't seen it so long. It's probably dry rotted before I've ever pulled a piece <laughs> of it off. Uh, in, in Montana, the vast majority of my dry fly fishing is done with 4X and 5X. Um, I do fish, like I said, to Pew Spring Creeks, 10 minutes from my house. And and I guess my thoughts on that are if, if I can't get a fish to eat on, on 6X, then then you know, more power to them. They, they win today. I'll see what happens tomorrow. And, and I really, I don't think fish are tippet shy in, in the way we say they're tippet shy. I think thicker tick tippet is more affected by minute stream current issues, which cause the fly to act unnaturally. So if, if you have a thinner diameter, you have eight X tippet, it's less impacted by the currents on the stream. So, but if you just got a better reach cast, if you move to a better position of the fish, then you wouldn't need to go to the eight X, which you're not going to be able to land the fish on anyways. And you would be able to defeat it to them with a six X just fine. And when it comes to fluorocarbon, I have fished all my dry flies on fluorocarbon forever. You know, you read all this stuff, fluorocarbon makes your fly sink. Fluorocarbon sinks so it's no good. You can't. So I I, I fish fluorocarbon all the time. Um, you know, whether or not you have to, I, I don't know. Um, but but I do it. It, it, it. Generally, they tell you it's less likely to abrade. And when it does abrade, it's, it retains a higher breaking strength. And, and that knowledge is good enough for me that, that that's what I do. Yeah, same with fluorocarbon yeah. almost all the time. And, uh, you know, uh, the shelf life is actually pretty good. And shelf life on monofilament, by the way, I still have my Tortu tippet material from the mid-80s that I <laughs> Yellow Breaches Fly Shop. This is, they, they made a brown sort of chameleon Tortu line back then. And I am still using my spools of 7X, 8X. <laughs> And 2X. The time. Come on. No, I swear to God. I still got it in my fishing vest, and I'm using these spools of Tortu tippet material in, 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 that I'm using like 2X for certain sections of the, my butt sections, a liter. And my I was using 8X the other day, and it, and I, I caught a nice fish on it, and it and it not strength, and I try to pull it. So the shelf life is a lot longer than you 
possibly think. So, and now, <laughs> sure. yeah, I'm telling you, it's amazing. The French have something. They're just so brilliant. <laughs> Cuisine is amazing. And But anyways, we got one more topic to go, and uh, we are done with this podcast. But this is an interesting one. The last one is um, brown, ta- brown trout hunt like sharks, um, motion and wavelengths. I talk about a lot about their hunting styles in my Nexus book and your experiences with them, they have neural mass in their skin that detect motion and vibration like sharks. So their night stalking activity, people say I'm, I'm mouse fishing. I have to have the right mouse imitation. It really doesn't matter. I mean, you just need something that's waking the water, that's creating motion and movement. That's why anything that plops in the river at nighttime, a small duckling, a little snake, a frog, uh, a mouse, a big brown's going to hunt it. He's got neural mass in his skin that detects that motion more than other trout, and it's been proven scientifically. So that plop and that splat of that fly at night, that plop of the terrestrials, as soon as you hit the water, that hop, hop, hop it, plop it, smack it, you know, pop it off the bank. What's your theory on that? And, and terrestrials, um, how, how, how important do you think terrestrials are to big brown trout fishing? And I know um, Mike Schmidt right now and my good friend Greg Senior, they're out in Wyoming fishing hoppers on these little Wyoming spring creeks and having a ball and catching monster browns in the daytime. Um, the motion, the plop, the smat, uh, the splat, the neural mass in the skin of big browns. Uh, what's, what's your whole take on all that uh, terrestrial madness? I, I always think of, of big brown trout, whether they're waiting for a hopper to plop in the water or waiting for a bait fish to swim by. To me, the, I always think of them as ambush predators. You know, they're, they're waiting for something to come near their, their lie and, and, and make any sort of movement and they're going to just nail it. Terrestrials are vital. You know, there are some streams in Pennsylvania that are recovering from acid mine drainage that if there wasn't for the terrestrials, the wild trout that live in there would have almost nothing to eat. There's some interesting studies done by the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission that trying to figure out how these fish even survive. Uh, you know, they may have a smattering of a couple pollution-tolerant aquatic insects, but but terrestrials are the key. And of course, out, out in the West, you know, where we have these expansive valleys and we get lots of wind and it's largely grasslands, and you have these incredible populations of grasshoppers that either fly or are blown get blown in, into the water that's you know august out west is is hopper season that's what most people are throwing um and just like anything else you know um, you, you gotta have you can start with these giant foam hoppers but but by the end i like more more muted and flush floating stuff like stout hoppers or or uh, there's a fly shop down the road from my house called Hatch Finders, uh, and that that gentleman's in, has a a hopper he invented called the Pink Pookie, which is a pink fly pink hopper that rides real flush to the surface and it does great. When it talk when you talk about slapping flies down too, so one of the early days of Charlie Mecken and, and and me fishing, we we're on this little stream together. And I had separated from him and gone upstream. And of course, I, I threw a real crummy cast right when he comes walking up and he looked at me, he goes, that's right. Slap it in there. That gets their attention. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did that on purpose. <laughs> you know, it wasn't because I threw a tail and loop that cut the bottom and it just sort of flopped down there. But but uh, Charlie certainly believed in, in in causing a disturbance that the trout could sense and in, in provoking them into a strike. Absolutely. And I'm a little bit about cicadas. Um 
So this is the big year of cicadas. All the boys in PA are, are social meeting about the cicadas and cicadas. My, I have a little experience with them when I spend time up in State College when I lived in, in D.C. as a hotelier, um, a little bit on Spring Creek. What's your experience with cicadas? Sure. This, this year has been almost all hype. This is not the one you want for central Pennsylvania. It's the next brood, which comes in. I forget if it's three or four years from now, but that's when they were there and I was running the TCO state college fly shop. That was the last time I fished from before sunrise till after sunset on multiple days, Matt, it was incredible fish, just stupid. And you're fishing these giant flies. And I, I caught, I probably caught a bigger fish on, on Spruce Creek in front of Indian caverns that, than I ever caught on the Delaware on a dry fly. But I'm not sure I count that one because I think somebody might have been feeding it some pellets. But but that thing was probably about 27 inches long. And just sucking in cicadas like they've been looking for them all day. I, I had a little experience back in the 80s when uh, I fished McMullen's. Remember McMullen's property in Spruce Creek in the lower section? And Yeah, sure. Dave. Coming up. And... Uh, those fish were just so pellet fed, man, back in the day. It was crazy. But they just went crazy for cicadas. And it was just any any big foamy thing that looked like a cicada, you could you could tie it with a, a plastic bag and some some foam from something and it just looked good. Right. Up and ate it. They were just pigs and it was a great time. So um and now in closing, Paul, uh, we're gonna talk. Um, I just want you to talk a little bit about your new book. I'm so excited um to for this to come out or has it come out already tell us what's going on with it so the new book's called dry fly strategies it's the first in a, a little series that stackpole's putting together about the fundamentals of fly fishing um it's a book that's geared towards either uh people that that haven't dried fished a lot like let's say uh, you know you, you got into your own infant and that was your experience with with fly fishing and you want to take it and, and learn how to cast fish on dry flies there's that um there's some advanced stuff in there you know if you've been dry fly fishing your, your whole life i wouldn't exactly say this book's meant for you but every one of us do things a little bit different so i would assume that there you could find a few things in there that that i do differently that than you do and 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 may inspire some thoughts uh the book's available right now for for pre-order on amazon and and barnes and noble it's due to be released on august 1st and certainly uh all, all the big fly shops out there you know tony gammon from tco uh i was talking to him a couple of days ago that they, they plan to carry it in the shop and my good friend joe fox that owns the daddy fly shop in livingston manor is going to have a bunch we're, we're trying to plan a a uh, get together where I, I do a book signing and maybe some demonstrations in late September up at the Deddy Fly Shop in Livingston Manor. So um, still working out the details on that, but I'll have that on my website. When it I am so looking for that, Paul. Um, and hopefully I can get it. Uh, we talk about it in uh, the Hollowed Waters Journal in the uh, spring summer issue. If you haven't had a chance to see it, it's a, it's a huge 264 page spring summer issue on dedicated to Mayflies. And we awesome. talked about Paul's book in there, and we got uh, uh, an image of it. It is so great to talk to you, Paul. I can't wait to sit on a tailgate again with you and uh, smoking cigars and smoking whatever and enjoying some Pink Floyd. Uh, these days, I'm listening to a lot of Deep House um, EDM electro music, so I've turned into sort of one of these Euro, Euro copies. <laughs> um, so we might have to listen to some cool, cool chill music. 
um, or some, you know, um, a cosmic gate or, uh, or some of that crazy Euro, Euro trash disco, but, um, uh, we'll, we'll get together and do it soon. Hopefully I'll come out to uh, Yellowstone and be another crazy tourist. That'll drive you nuts, but it was such a pleasure to have you, sir. Um, uh, we all invite you to come to hollowed waters journal, our new magazine. And, uh, we'd love to hear your questions for the next podcast. Just send them to editor at hollowedwaters.com. We'd love to entertain them. Our next podcast is going to be Big Brown Trout Tailwater Masters on the Nymph. And uh, we're going to be discussing uh, several episodes with some guys up on the East Coast and on the Bighorn and places like that. But uh, thank you so much, Paul. Um, this has been so entertaining. I could go on. I think we're way over our time, but... I, we could just start talking forever and I can't stop with you. You're just so cool. So thank you, sir. Um, stay tuned for more Hollowed Waters podcast. And um, this is Matt Sapinski and Paul Weimer. Thank you for listening in. Have a good day. Bye.